at Harvard, I talked to one person who said they were in a small class with him and she threw a dinner party for the class, but there were 12 people in the seminar and she only had room for eight. And she didn't invite him because she felt he wouldn't have felt as comfortable as some of the other people. I mean, that's not, how many dinner parties have I not been invited to? Probably like 12 today. Hey, Richard. Hi, Paul. How are you today? I'm all right. Let's not talk about the pandemic anymore. Just for one episode. Let's take a break. That sounds great. All right, let's do that. So let me tell you something. I am and used to be a technology journalist, right? You remember this? You were and you still are. That's right. Yes. So there are lots of technology-focused journalists in the world. And then there's like this one guy who has been at it at a higher level than anybody else for longer. And every couple years, you get another book that you kind of wish he had written. Wow, that's the ultimate compliment, right? From writer to writer. Yeah, no, no. I mean, if there's one person to be jealous of in the weird industry of writing about technology, it's Stephen Levy. And I've probably, I don't know, as many Stephen Levy books as there are, I've probably missed one, but I've read a lot of them. I use anecdotes from them. And it it just coincidentally, I'm not actually just talking about this just to talk about it. Stephen Levy is on our podcast. Stephen, welcome. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. I'm blushing from that very nice introduction. Listen, I remember being in college, and it it probably would be about five or six years after you'd written Hackers. I don't know if that was your first book or not, but it was like, it sort of set this whole world that we live in up, like MIT and open source and nerds hacking away in the middle of the night and helped us understand what that world was like. The other one that sticks out, people should go and look through the the Stephen Levy bibliography, but The Perfect Thing, which was about the iPod. It was pre-iPad, right? Or pre, um, pre-iPhone, right? Yeah, it was, right? Yeah, a couple of years before the iPhone. So it's just this moment where this amazing new sector shows up and you get to sort of see the true intensity of Steve Jobs in this world. Anyway, I'm telling you about your stuff because I'm excited to have you on. Really, I'm really glad you mentioned that book because I, I did something really, I didn't do for no other book. I really wanted to have fun with it. And I love the shuffle part of the iPod. So I literally wrote the book, like 10 essays, long essays, and you could shuffle them. And we came out, I got the publisher to do this in four different versions determined by my son and my niece picking out ping pong balls with the chapters. Wait, wait, so the chapters were arranged differently? Yeah, there are four different versions of the hardback (laughs) version. (laughs) That's great. I missed that entirely. Stephen, where are you now? You're you're a writer for a magazine that I know well, but give us a little of that. Right. Well, I, I work for Wired Magazine or Wired the Brand online and magazine and video and whatever else it wants to be. And I've been affiliated with Wired since it started. But for a lot of that time, I was working for Newsweek. When Newsweek was really Newsweek, I was the main technology writer. Then I went to Wired and took a couple of years off a few years ago to start a publication called Back Channel on Medium. And then Condé Nast bought the publication and I went back to Condé Nast. The publication got merged back into Wired. So I wound up where I started. And I'm writing books all the time. So Yeah, I mean, as publishing goes, that's a pretty great outcome. <laughs> it's a good. The nice thing is Wired took the back channel name because we were all about great long form stuff. 
And now the long-form franchise on the web, Wired, is called Backchannel. So anytime they say, oh, I'm doing a story for Backchannel, I feel that, that that's great. And my partner, my co-founder of Backchannel, Sandra Upson, also is went to Wired with me and uh, and she's there and she just wrote actually a terrific story, which I'm sure you read about the Cloudflare guy, the coder who, you know, literally lost his mind. There's yeah, a, I just read it. It's great. It's It's devastating and really good. People listening should go read that piece. And then there is a very large blue book that recently came out. And it's a very specific shade of blue because it's about Facebook, which is also a very specific shade of blue. I say for the first time where that shade of blue came from. It had never been published before. Spoil it for us. Or do I have to read the book? The guy who picked that shade of blue, and this wasn't in the original of the Facebook. They were in Silicon Valley and it was a year or so after the original Facebook came out and a real designer was working on it. And he stole that blue from the website of the Carlisle Group. Oh, oh, they're nice. They're, they're good, friendly people. That's definitely the affiliation that you want. Do you really need to steal a blue? Sure, yeah. I mean, it was, it's a very impactful blue, but Carlisle Group. Kind of dark, Cold War-ish, evil company, right? <laughs> and uh, you know, that's where it came from. So maybe it sort of seeped into, bled into the DNA of Facebook. I don't know. You started this thing at a very, very different time in Facebook's history, sort of sort of at the peak, right? Like, I mean, did you, when, when did the book, tell us a little bit about how this thing came to be and, and also sort of what it is, because it really strikes me as this is a, the first attempt to truly capture Facebook in all of its breadth and not just sort of as a weird social phenomenon, but as like a new piece of culture. So when did this start? So I got the impetus and the hunger to write this book in late August of 2015, when Zuckerberg posted that a billion people had been on Facebook the day before, within 24 hours, this huge chunk of humanity was on his network in one day. Because I know they've been past the billion members point, but anyone could be a member and not show up. Oh, but live active users, not just names in a database. You know, in 24 hours, a billion people had been active on Facebook. And I thought, this has never happened before. And I have to write a book about this. You know, who who were these people? And I I had met him some time ago, earlier, almost 10 years before that, and been following Facebook and writing about it and interviewing him. But I thought, this is a big story. And it's a story that's made for me. This is the kind of book that I could write. And I also felt that it would be really useful if I got their cooperation to write it. And when I say their cooperation, I mean, give me access to them and let me interview them and all the people there. And the way I do that is they say yes, and I don't do anything in return except be fair, right? Mm -hmm. So they don't get to read it in advance or say what's in it. And it took me almost a year to get them to that point where they agreed to that. And literally a year, almost to the day after that idea, I went with Mark Zuckerberg to Nigeria to start my research. And that's where the book opens up. How did you convince them ultimately? What, what made them go from eh, to, yeah, all right, let's let Stephen Levy write this giant book that looks deep inside of our organization? They were very, uh, to begin with. First, they said, no. Then they said, well, if anyone would do it, it'd be you, but we're not doing it. Then they said, well, maybe you should write up something for Mark and Cheryl to look at. And I had done a book about Google before that 
under similar circumstances. It really did explain Google and was useful to Google for that purpose. And some of the people who were making this decision, one in particular, had been at Google. And even though Google said this book, you know, we yeah, this book is really useful, but we're never going to cooperate with anyone like this again. He he knows too much. And I said to them, listen, what you're doing is historic. Even if it's not me writing this book, you have to let an outsider come in and write a book and tell this story. And they thought what they were doing was historic too. So I think that appealed to them, the idea that, hey, this is history and it is important and we should do this. And we know him and he's fair. So let's roll the dice. Now, they had no idea what was coming down the pike a few months after I started the book, because my beginning when I went to Africa with Zuckerberg, that was peak Facebook. Oh, yeah. You got your your billion plus. He's in Africa. He's the young hero. When was that? When did you go to Nigeria with him? You know, late August, early September of 2016. Oh, September. So we're we're before the general election. But and Facebook, they had had a lot of people complaining about them, but nothing had stuck. They were Teflon before all that. They'd had their privacy sort of dramas, right? That would come in and then they'd come out. And... But it all just kind of like scraped yeah. off. Well, and it could always get it. fixed with like a nice, you know, we take your privacy very seriously at Facebook message directly from Zuckerberg. Like there was always, they had a good script for whatever crisis and we're, we're listening and, you know, we're, we're committed to freedom and speech and it would, it would kind of just wash out every time. And then, <laughs> then the election. And that, that is, you know, in the book, and this is, this is really the beginning of the book, is it just like, that was it. Yeah, they went from the poster child for, you know, what Silicon Valley could be and Zuckerberg from the role model for every young founder to you know, the, the dark evil power that exemplified why we shouldn't like tech companies anymore. Now, look, you're talking to them during this time. You know, I'm assuming we, you've started the book, Stephen, sure, we'll get back to you. Or, you know, we're, we're setting up another interview with Mark and Cheryl and so on. And then things start to go bad. How long was the gap between things getting sort of really bad in public perception and them understanding how bad it was? Because that always fascinates me when orgs that are so big that they can live in their own bubble and almost need to live in their own bubble to, to do their work. And then the world is kind of encroaching. Do they know that day or is it just like take a while for people to to figure it out? Well, reality wasn't evenly distributed within Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. That's the title of the podcast. Some people got it right away, right after the election. Other people felt, hey, this will blow over. And to be honest, you really couldn't have predicted it would be so total that it would be one thing after another. One big difference is that, you know, that it was Donald Trump they elected. Mm-hmm. If Hillary Clinton had been elected, I think the trajectory would have been much, much different for Facebook. Or, or Mitt Romney, right? Like it just, the, a new platform emerges and a very new kind of political outcome is the result. So, you know, the things that people wound up unhappy with and the things that were actual misdeeds on Facebook's part, they were there no matter who's elected. 
But mm-hmm. this put it in real sharp relief. And, you know, people were ready to look negatively on Facebook and, and dig these things up. It really got traction after that. So some people got it right away. Other people, Facebook, because they had this history of having a crisis and skating past it, thought that that would be, this would be another thing like that. Let me go in my toolbox and we'll we'll hammer this out. Yeah, it just wouldn't go away. Move fast and break things, right? So, you know, you could always apologize later. That was the the unspoken uh, coda to move fast and break things and say, we're sorry, we'll fix it and go on. So let me let me ask you a weird question, which is just like, at one point, Zuckerberg was doing a 50-state tour. That was a very surreal moment because it's like, is this person running for president? Or But they're already kind of the governor of a giant new kind of global state and, and sort of all this other stuff going on. And that's when I started to think, wow, they see the world foundationally differently. And I, I think when you're in a big org, like when you talk to people from Google or you talk to people from Apple, obviously they see the world through Apple's eyes. You become I, I see the world through Postlight's eyes. So do our, our employees. So does Rich. And so you always have to work for that filter. But like, how does Facebook, which actually is able to sense and understand the world in ways that very few organizations can... What is the difference between a, a Facebook person looking out and reading the news and looking at the looking at the sunshine versus you and me getting up in the morning, reading the Times and kind of sitting in our rooms and doing our work? Well, I think the way to answer that, I think, is to say, what does Zuckerberg think? What does Mark Zuckerberg view the world? Mm-hmm. So you're really asking, why did he do that? And I don't think he was doing it ever to run for president. That That really was not is motivation. He doesn't want to run for president. And why would he take that demotion? It's true. A lot of supervision and much lower pay. Like why, why do it? If Facebook was a country, it would be by far the biggest country in the world, right? There's almost 3 billion people there. There's no country like that. And he told me, I think at one point that the Africa thing was somewhat of an inspiration for that trip because he liked what we were doing there, going and talking to people and learning about what things were like. I think it was you know, his de Tocqueville moment to go out and, and see people and connect with them and learn more about what Facebook can bring to the world. And it was something that I think was a, a professional thing. I mean, he wasn't doing it solely to satisfy his nature or to promote himself, but more to help Facebook. It turned out to be really tone deaf considering where Facebook was at that point. And I think it might have even been wise at some point to say at some point during the year, hey, I wanted to do this and go to all the states during the year, but things are happening with my company and I'm making a statement by pulling the plug on this trip, which became increasingly out of step and bizarre as he went on. But he didn't do that. He, you know, he's a very stubborn guy who goes off on these quests and doesn't budge off them. All right. So what? what is he? So, I mean, he's stubborn. He's pushing through. All of this is imploding. Like, let's name another name, which is a name that Rich and I talk about a lot with a mixture of fascination and maybe just a little bit of fear, which is Sheryl Sandberg. I feel that her story actually is terrific. When you say terrific, how come? I mean, she, to me, is the poster child of the meritocracy and what's right with it and what's wrong with it. She grew up a well-to-do, not a rich family, an upper middle class, I think, probably family, a lot of doctors in the family. And she is a believer that if you work hard, 
you know, you could do anything from your privileged position of someone who's grown up going to the good schools and then gotten into the best schools. So she clicks off all the check marks. She's mentored by Larry Summers, who <clears throat> later becomes the head of Harvard. She goes with him to the Treasury Department. She works at the World Bank. She does good things and fights leprosy. And then is the Treasury Department and then goes to Silicon Valley, right? The land of opportunity and succeeds there. Then goes to Facebook. She takes, makes a bet on this company and that guy who we're the strange guy who runs it. The whole thing, this beautiful ship, this cruise ship that she's built for herself, you know, hits the iceberg. And, you know, it's the iceberg a lot of ways. You know, her life takes a a bad turn. In one case, a tragic turn because she finds a perfect mate for her, a fantastic guy, and he suddenly dies. And then a year after that, the company runs into horrible trouble. And now she's peddling rapidly, a person who believes all her life that if you work hard enough, you're going to get the A plus and you're going to do that. And that's not working for her. And I got to see how that unfolds. As I'm reading the book, I I was looking for the bad guys. I was thinking, okay, we're going to finally go into that sort of windowless room where they plot. A lot of people are disappointed that I didn't give them that. And Paul gave me this wonderful introduction. And I think the reason why he likes my work so much is because these are all stories. I'm a literature major. You know, I'm telling stories. and And these are amazing true life novels. And yeah. they're not yeah. like cut and dry. They're not cartoons. It's a novel. It's a true life novel yeah. of the most important subject of our time, how the technology changes our world. And, and in this story, you're not going to get, you know, like mustache twirling. You're going to get stories about people who start off thinking they're doing the right thing and then get tempted to take wrong turns. And this is how things go wrong. Yeah. But I think when you still, still when you zoom back out, you don't get that pass. I, I, I do think they lose all perspective, right? I think they created a thing that was just utterly unwieldy and they had to try to get their arms around it. But there are still a lot of stories within your stories of decisions that feel like, what were you thinking? Well, that's it. I mean, so what happened was after the fall came, after the election, when things turned wrong, in a way, it limited what I could do. I could only write one book after that. And the book was, what happened? Chekhov says, if, if you plant a gun in the first act of a play, it's got to go off. So I was writing this book and all the guns are going off. I had to go back and find out where they were planted. Did you find that your interactions with them, that they were a little more guarded? Like, did your dynamic with them change after the election? Well, I was talking yeah, to a lot of people there. And what happens is, When you do a project like this, and I learned this in the Google book, and you talk to hundreds of people in a company, you know, people who work there, people who used to work there, people who dealt with them, sometimes competitively, sometimes collaboratively, you understand the language they speak. It's it's like anthropology going into some tribe, right? And once you learn to speak the language, then things start to happen. Then you really learn what's going on. And then even if they are cautious around you, that caution strips because you're speaking their language. Mm -hmm. So even if they think they're not telling you anything, they're telling you plenty. Then of course, there are some of them who are unhappy and then we'll, we'll tell you in other venues what really is going on, but you could do quite a lot 
on the record with a PR person in there when you speak that language because they're telling you a lot. Could anyone else run this company? Like you've you've looked inside of the biggest companies for 20 plus years. You interviewed Steve Jobs plenty of times. I mean, just like you've seen these leaders up close, probably more than most human beings have across the spectrum of leaders. Could anyone take over and fix Facebook or is it Facebook that's broken? Well, Facebook got there by all those decisions, you know, that basically it, it didn't have to come out that way, right? You know, they're, they're having such a tough time fixing it because they made it in a way where it's ripe for abuse. And they made that because that same way it's ripe for abuse made it on a, in a position to grow very quickly and become addictive. And it didn't have to be that way. So it's not impossible to change it, but it's painful. It's so hard to make decisions that are going to cost you tens or hundreds of billions of dollars in the future, right? Like that's, that's hard to do. I'd have trouble doing that. Well, but if you're following the same course that ultimately is going to cost you billions of dollars in fines or ultimately some decision which is going to be devastating to what you do, then you have to make the change. Then you have to you know, bite the bullet and make the change. I think what's interesting here, though, is as I'm reading the book, I'm not seeing money being the driver. I'm seeing success being the driver. I mean, you use that that board game analogy a few times in the book and how Mark like just thinks thinks in the context of these role-playing games, like, you know? And so I don't think that was it. You know, humans, I think if you give them enough power, cause damage even if they don't mean to. I, I, there's no oath, right? And I think with here, I think you reach a point, uh, you know, where you really have no control. You've lost control of the thing, but they still feel like deep in their hearts, they are good people doing something good for the world. What, what happened is that your mission, connecting the world, which sounds warm and fuzzy and wonderful, gets messed up with the sub-goals. If you're going to connect the world, you got to grow. So growth is important. But then growth for becomes like a, a mission in itself. And growth yeah. is in a Mormon fuzzy mission. It's a brutal one. Making money. Well, you, the reason why we have to make money is so we can grow. The idea isn't to pile up the most money. The idea is to fuel growth, to keep the, that growth going. So these sub-goals become just as important and ends in themselves. And that's where stuff goes off the rails. Let me, let me ask you that. I mean, the, the election was in 16, right? So you show up earlier, you get in there, but you know, the Arab Spring, which at the, in the beginning was very inspiring for a moment, for like 10 minutes, because it was just people out in the streets. Every single one devolved into a shit show, right? I, does any, is anyone at Facebook saying, you know, humans are inherently good, decent people. And if you give them this kind of power, good things are going to happen. And every single one, I happen to be Lebanese. So I saw it catch fire in Lebanon for a minute. And then it went horrible. You watch Egypt go horrible. Syria went horrible. Um, and so was anybody having that conversation in Facebook saying, you know what, maybe this isn't the right thing <laughs> to hand people? Now they talk about it and they say, yeah, we loved Arab Spring. And they get that there's another side to that. But for a number of years, they didn't want to hear it. How come? Because they wanted to grow. I think there's a kind of like just a product driven thinking where it's like, well, you know, we built a great thing for, for unlimited human interaction. And yeah, I mean, we, mm. you know, some things are going to break and 
it's going to be tough, but obviously it's better to have more communication than less. And, and, you know, these things, it had never hit this point before. Nothing grew like this thing. And so- the thing is, that it, it is unprecedented. That's why I wanted to write the book in the first place. No one's connected everyone in the world. But, you know, I, I think, and I think the consensus believes you have a responsibility when you unleash these big things to look around the corner. Facebook itself says this now. It says, from now on, we're actually going to be more proactive. We're going to think about what consequences happen when we do something. Wow, you know, thanks now, right? And they they say, and Zuckerberg particularly says, hey, we started in a dorm room. You know, how can we know from a dorm room? And I looked into you know, the, the past. And I actually wound up spending more time in the early days of Facebook than I thought I would when I started this book, because I thought, oh, the social network people have heard this. No, no, no. You had to go back and find out where the guns were planted. So I, I retold that story knowing what, what happened there. So you look at it and you look at that excuse that we were in the dorm room. Hey, within a few months after starting Facebook, they'd moved to Silicon Valley and they were getting advice from the smartest, some of the smartest people in Silicon Valley. They were getting funded, you know, by VCs with a, like a lot of money. They were in the big leagues. So it wasn't <clears> like they had no access to expertise or people who scaled things. They were right in the middle of it and they heard it. And Zuckerberg, naive though he might have been in some ways, was a, like a smart person who knew who to listen to and who not to listen to. To get what he wanted. I mean, you defer ethics just in the same way you might put off quarterly taxes, right? Like we, we know it's we're going to have to figure it out later. But let me. All right. So there's a thing I need to unpack because it's come up a lot. It's in the book. I, I just need to understand what the hell is the connection with Zuckerberg and Caesar Augustus? Do you know about this, Rich? I do. So he loves him. But I just like I can't. It just keeps getting mentioned and kind of brought up. Like, what were you able to figure out about that? So he, from high school, he loved the classics. He loved, like, he took Latin. He took a summer course, the Johns Hopkins Exceptional Students Summer Course. Have you heard of that? Mm-hmm. One of the guys who wrote his Harvard recommendation was his, his teacher there. And he really connected with Augustus Caesar. And it was connected to his, he loved to play Risk, to take over the world, again, take over the world, Civilization. These were his favorite games. And he had this connection with him when he went to Italy once with his wife, you know, I think it was on their honeymoon. She complained. There were three people on the honeymoon, you, me and Augustus Caesar. He kept like, looking at all the, you know, uh, places that, that Caesar had. And, uh, Come on, babe. We're just going to stop by the Pantheon again. I mean, you look at his haircut, you know, I mean, there, there's a connection there. Is, is there a bit of a, he couldn't conquer the schoolyard. So he wanted to conquer the world. Well, he wasn't that, he wasn't, wasn't sort of an unpopular kid. He was a quiet kid, but he, he fenced and he did have, have his friends. But when he did speak up, people listened to him. So, no, I mean, I think that's what's wild is you have a very capable, very bright person who gains an unbelievable amount of power and then really likes that power and, you know, decides to kind of create a governance model and, and build a, a nation state out of the internet the point I keep taking through from the book is that as this system smashes into other giant institutions like the United States government or the concept of democracy, it's there's just a, it's it's truly like 
aircraft carriers smashing into each other. It's not, Facebook doesn't subvert itself to democracy. It profits, it, it sort of says, put us in charge, we'll take care of this for you. And then just kaboom as these things smash. What's always been amazing to me is not so much Zuckerberg grabbing for power, but being comfortable right. with it, but not being freaked out by his own power. I would be freaked out without much power. I think there was just some some weird infinite confidence sort of grounded in a certain level of naivete. I mean, I think... It's a personality thing. Of, you know, I, I, I love pondering how people got that way, unusual people. You know, Paul mentioned Steve Jobs, who I spent a lot of time with. And I always wondered, what? how did Steve Jobs get to be Steve Jobs, right? And he was like that as a kid. There was no clear answer. Like he was sort of born into the Jobsian mindset. Yeah, Malcolm Gladwell has this theory about outliers. And, and I, I don't buy that because it doesn't explain Steve Jobs. No, I mean, it doesn't because it's, it's the, the patterns of behavior. And you, you do this with Zuckerberg too. Like, it's not just like, oh, he saw a guitar when he was 12. And then later he became Jimi Hendrix. It's like when you look at the way he's playing civilization and the way, you know, describing it and thinking about it, his narrative is one of, I was always a little different. I always did it this way. I talked to his parents. They must be very proud. Yeah, well, they're, they're <laughs> super proud. And they were very reluctant to talk to me for a long time because considering all the bad things that were happening, saying about, they were afraid they would say something wrong. So his mother tells me the story. He was in high school and he went to the local public school. It wasn't a bad school. It was Westchester County. But they didn't have enough computer courses. And he wanted to go to a, a private school to have more advanced classes and computer courses. And down the road, there was a really excellent school, Horace Mann, and his mother really wanted him to go there because his older sister was going to go away to college, and she didn't want to lose two kids, particularly the, the one son of their four kids, the, the chosen one. He had heard about this other school, you know, Phillips Exeter, and he got in his head he wanted to go there. And his mother said, listen, I really want to go to Horace Mann. Why don't you just, like, interview there and see if you like it? And he said, well, mm -hmm. I'll interview there, but I'm going to Exeter. That was it. He was going there. I thought yeah. about every time people said to him, Mark, we can set this program, which reports automatically what people buy on a website on their newsfeed. They have to opt into that consciously. We can't set this as an opt out. And he felt otherwise. And that's what happened. It was opt out and people wound up. Women found out that their boyfriends bought a diamond ring by looking at it on their newsfeed, you know. And, I, and when he made those decisions and other things like that, I just thought Exeter. So, look, here's the, the foundational question for me, which is, so you were, in, you were in this world for three or four years, yes? A little over three years, yeah. Okay. So this is a vast and infinite subject. Like, not just Zuckerberg, but Facebook is the... You might as well be writing about the United States, right? Like the Wikipedia page is 100 pages long. So how the hell do you stand up one day and go, okay, I'm done with this book? Well, here's, so we, what you do is, and I have to say, if, if, if one thing I'm going to be a, a modest, this is, this is sort of what I do in these books. There's been a few like, like this, is to tell these complicated stories as, as narratives. <clears throat> and you have to go into it with the confidence that there's going to be a way to end the narrative you choose to tell, right? So there's a lot that's going to happen with Facebook. We don't know what's going to happen. But the story to me is this arc of it starts off, there's these ideals, it grows because of this, and the story of, of these people there. And, and it's his story, largely. 
And I found what I thought was the end of it, right? You know, the, the way I make a big thing, we didn't talk about his notebook, this mm-hmm. notebook that he has when he outlines his vision for Facebook. And I reunite him with the notebook at the very end. So mm-hmm. basically it ends with him. I'm giving away something here, I guess. But with him looking back at how he's changed and how Facebook has changed. So to me, that tied the bow on this narrative and you get one complete story of Facebook and through it all, you've been through a lot. And I tie in, you know, we didn't talk about Instagram and WhatsApp and all the things and how all this stuff ties in to this narrative. And you know about this company intimately and have heard that story. Mm -hmm. That's what I wanted to do. And I hope I did it. I mean, you did. This, this is the thing you do. Are you glad to be done with that one in particular? Of course. You know, I mean, I'm glad that I was able to package that up. I still write about it sometimes, you know, Facebook. But, you know, to me, that's it. I'm not going to be writing in five years the Facebook part two. <laughs> the revenge. Do they ever get in touch? They ever say, hey, Stephen, interesting book. Uh, yeah. Mark Zuckerberg did, you know, contact me. He, he told me that he just doesn't agree with all of it. He thinks I might have gotten some things wrong in his view, but he saw what I put into it, which was like a lot of work and an effort to to tell the story. And he respected that. I imagine when you receive that email and you see the subject line, you take a little bit of a deep breath before you open it. First of all, it's Facebook Messenger. (laughs) Of course it is. Of course it is. All right. So two questions. First of all, this book is out for like about a month or two now, right? And uh, where do people go to, first of all, give us the full title and the publisher. It's published by, you know, the imprint is Blue Rider Press. It's part of Dutton, which is part of Penguin. You can get it wherever you get books. Probably the best way to do it is like a lot of independent bookstores now allow you, if you go to a place called IndieBound, you can order through a local bookstore. Or if you are a fan of, you know, the big Amazon, Barnes and Noble, you know, you can get that, you know, and, or you can get it instantly, of course, as an ebook from many of those places, uh, Kindle or Google or Apple, the audiobook, if you, if you like listening to it. Oh, did you read the audiobook? But no, I didn't. No, I didn't. Oh, okay. I, I read, mm-hmm. I narrated one audiobook of my work, and that was uh, the book about the Macintosh. And I did that like years after I wrote it, and also it was short. So that was okay. Sensible. If anybody wants to get in touch, um, what's the right way to reach you? You know, you could uh, go to my website, stephenlevy.com. There's a way to send mail. I'm stephen at wired.com if you want to write me something wiredish. I'm not hard to find. Great. Well, if 21-year-old 20, or like 19-year-old Paul knew that he would get to hang with Stephen Levy on a podcast, he would be pretty psyched right now. So this is very cool. Thank you. Thank you, both of you. That Thank was you, a Stephen. great interview. Rich, I got to run to a meeting. I got to present. Oh, boy. Well, then let's say goodbye to everyone. What do you know about Postlight? Postlight is a beautiful company. We are a kick-ass consulting firm, product design and development shop. We conceive, design, build, ship, all kinds of great things. We're the company you want nearby when you're thinking about the next big thing. I mean, we're your partner, right? If you, you need help, and, you know, the thing we don't talk about enough and, and, and I really want us to talk about is it's not just platforms and products, it's experience. It's about how people use these things. Yeah. And also we, we're, we love to look at the market, look at this landscape and think about, you know, how do you get in there? How do you penetrate? How do you do something impactful? We like big problems. 
And that is why you should send us an email at hello at postlight.com. Reach out. And we'll help you not build the next Facebook. <laughs> Have a good week, everyone. Bye, everybody. <laughs>